The following sermon was preached in the Sunday gathering of First Baptist Church of Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin. We pray it bears fruit in your life, and we hope that you share it with others who might also benefit. At the same time, if you're not already, we encourage you to join a faithful local church where you can sit under the preaching of God's word and observe the ordinances. Visit firstbaptistwr.com for more information. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ's blood and for his righteousness, by which he purchased redemption for us and fellowship in a partnership in the gospel. And we pray now that as we turn to your word, you would give us grace to receive your word and to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. Pray in his name. Amen. The book of Philippians, which we're starting with today, is an epistle, which is a word that just means a letter, and it's written in a form common at the time. Um, it's really nothing special in terms of its form. Um, if you look at Paul's letters, you'll notice they all begin with a greeting, and almost all of them begin with thanksgiving, and then the main body of the text before a farewell. The human author of this book of Philippians, as I've already said, is the Apostle Paul. But he writes along with his co-worker, Timothy. And this book is known as one of Paul's prison letters because he wrote it while he was in prison in Rome, in Italy. And Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire at that time, which ruled. And he was waiting a trial before Caesar himself. The most likely date of this book is around 61 A.D., which if you do the math, if Jesus rose in about 33 A.D., it's only 30 years, less than 30 years after the first Easter. Paul the, the Apostle, of course, is that same Paul that's, who's also called Saul of Tarsus, who calls himself an apostle untimely born because he saw Jesus in a vision on the road to Damascus long after the other 12 apostles had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And, of course, he's traveling on that road to Damascus in order to persecute Christians. And he would haul them off to prison, or worse. This is the same Paul who oversaw the stoning of Stephen, of Stephen sorry, in Acts chapter 7. So clearly much has happened in the time in between that event and now, because now Paul is writing to one of the early churches which he helped to found. He's leading the religion he once tried to destroy. Now, Philippi was one of the leading cities of Rome. It was a colony, and it's located in modern-day Greece, just off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But it was a, a leading Roman city with much civic pride. So with that context in mind, now let's turn to the letter and see what Paul writes to the Philippians. <clears throat> Starting with verse 1, he writes, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now this Timothy is that same Timothy that Paul wrote the two letters known as 1 and 2 Timothy 2. 
And you can glean from those letters elsewhere in Scripture that Timothy is a young man whose grandmother and mother before him were both believers. Paul most likely led Timothy to the faith himself, as he calls him in several other places in Scripture, his son in the faith. From the time of Timothy's conversion in Galatia, he seems to have been Paul's closest associate and his co-worker, his mentee, his right-hand man, who he sends on important tasks, and he's well known for his faithfulness in the gospel. Now, we can learn something here from Paul about seeing potential in young men and young women, especially in those in the faith. We can invite them into our labors with us and help them on the way. We can mentor them, invest in them, encourage them, help them to develop their gifts in order to bring glory to God and to strengthen the church. Many of you have been believers here a long time, and you've learned much, you know much. You've been with Jesus a long time, following him, and you have much to share. So take any opportunity you have. If the Lord puts someone in your path, pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Mentor them, encourage them. As we look out in the world right now, we can see that there is lostness and despair, and people don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know who they are. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what they're supposed to do. Totally lost. Now you, if you know Christ, you know the way. You know the way to eternal life. You have much to share with them. So take out any opportunity you have. Pray for the Lord to open doors for you to share what you know. And be who you are, a son or a daughter of the king, an ambassador for the kingdom. It might be your kids, it might be a co-worker, it might be someone across the street, a neighbor or a friend. Pray for the Lord to open doors and then walk through them. Step out in faith. We can see lots of darkness in the land, but you can do much good in the world. It's not a lost cause. You can do much good, and you can change someone's eternity as well as their present, just like Paul did with Timothy. He sets a great example here as, a, as an apostle of Christ. Now Paul goes on, and he calls himself and Timothy bondservants of Jesus Christ. Now that's an odd word. We don't usually use that in conversation. Now, in plain terms, this is a shocking thing for Paul to say, because how this word could really be translated here is slave. And that's how the Christian Standard Bible translates it, for example. Slaves of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not a title of honor. It's a strange title to willingly apply to yourself. And we all know the history around slavery. We know why slavery was outlawed in the West. A slave is someone whose life and liberty belong to someone else. Paul is using a well-known institution of the time as a metaphor to describe his relationship to Christ. The life and liberty of every Christian belong to Jesus Christ. He made us in the beginning. We're his creation. He gives us life and breath and everything. And that's true whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. 
You're his creation. And all men belong to God in that sense and on that level. But in Adam, all sinned. Adam chose rather to be a slave of sin and death and the devil rather than of God, and he plunged the world into darkness and chaos. Satan became ruler of this world with mankind as his subjects and slaves, and he drives men into misery and despair, all in the name of a so-called liberty. And while we were slaves, if you're a believer here today, while we were slaves to sin, Christ paid the price to redeem us, to purchase us back from that slavery to unrighteousness so that those who are in Christ doubly belong to him. He made us and then he saved us, paying the price of his blood for our freedom. So we are his twice, doubly, first by virtue of creation and second by virtue of redemption. And redemption is also a concept that is borrowed from the institution of slavery. So Paul and those with Paul who have a faith in Christ, they're a different kind of slave. They're not slaves taken in war or forced into slavery through poverty and debts unpaid. They're those who willingly give up a life of sin and death and a liberty to sin, and rather they subject themselves to Christ to true freedom in serving him with all of their life and breath and everything, because though they were great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior, and he paid the price for them to become slaves of righteousness, slaves to a perfect master, and slaves of righteousness, which leads to eternal life. So the life and liberty of Paul and Timothy belong to Jesus because he bought them with his own blood while they were still sinners. And that's what Paul means in calling himself and Timothy slaves of Christ. And so, as Christians, we should gladly take that title ourselves and meditate and think about what that means to be a slave of Jesus Christ and put our lives at the disposal of our great Redeemer for good and for the gospel. Moving on, Paul goes on to address the recipients of this letter. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Now, Paul is very clear that he's writing this letter to the saints, to the saints in Philippi. Now, saints are God's holy ones, those he has set apart from the world. He, he's marked them out for himself. A saint isn't a special class of Christian, as uh, came in vogue in the Middle Ages, but every Christian is a saint, every one of them. If you are a believer in Christ, Christ has washed you clean in the blood of the Lamb. So if you are in Christ through faith, you are one of his saints. And Paul writes this letter to the saints in Philippi, and by extension, all the other saints throughout the world who are of a like faith with Paul. Without exception, every one of them, this book is for you. But if you haven't been born again, if you're not a believer in Christ, the promises and the life in this book, they're not yours. 
Another interesting thing to note here is that Paul explicitly mentions the bishops and deacons in his greeting. A bishop is just a word that means overseer, someone who oversees the church. It's a word that's interchangeable with pastor or elder. And so in the Protestant understanding, there are two offices in the church. Uh, bishop or elder or overseer or pastor, and then the deacons. Uh, there's no pope. Sorry. <laughs> uh, at any rate, Paul doesn't single out the officers of the church in every letter. Um, so if you are an officer of the church, it's not a bad idea to pay particular attention to his instructions here. Verse 2 now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now grace is God giving you things that you don't deserve on your own merits. Giving you things you don't deserve. Peace is is an absence of hostility and an enjoyment of friendly fellowship with someone, good terms with them. Now, only Christians enjoy redeeming grace, and only Christians have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For any person who has not repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ for righteousness and life, any good thing God gives them by His common grace it only stores up more wrath for them in the end, any kindness they enjoy from God, because they don't receive it with thanksgiving. And no person outside of Christ has any real peace with God. Rather, they're at war with God, open hostility, and it's a war they'll lose. So there's one religion that offers hope. There's one way to salvation, and that is by the blood of the Lamb through whom we have peace with God. And so Paul's greeting here, which is customary in his letters, it's a greeting and blessing that's uniquely Christian. And with Paul's greeting com complete, he opens up his thanksgiving portion of his letter, uh, which is also his custom in his epistles. So let's look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Remember that as Paul writes this letter, he's in prison. And yet, what does Paul speak of in these verses? Thanksgiving, joy, confidence. That's not normal. Now, if Paul can be thankful to God in prison, and even wrongful imprisonment, is there any place on earth, any circumstance, where you can also have that same kind of thanksgiving, joy, confidence? Maybe you're not thankful for that particular circumstance. Some things are evil in themselves. Prison is not a good in itself, especially not wrongful imprisonment. That's an injustice, and it's wrong, and it's evil. But Paul is giving thanks even in that circumstance. Why? How? What for? To put it plainly, Paul can give thanks because he is a Christian. 
It is a supernatural work of grace. Since Paul is in the Savior, since Paul's been washed in the blood of Christ, since he is a saint, he has peace with God, the grace of the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Spirit, he has every good thing that he needs, the fullness of every good thing. And Paul knows that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He writes that elsewhere in Romans 8.28. He says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So prison may not be a good in itself, but God will use it for good. And we'll see that as we move through this book. Now, I once heard an elder in the faith teaching a Sunday school class, and he taught a very helpful saying on this very topic. He said this, When things don't go as they should, God always makes it turn for good. When things don't go as they should, God always makes it turn for good. For believers, that is true. He does. It's not just a nice saying. It's true. Paul wrote it in Romans 8.28 in Scripture. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you believe that? It is written. It's fixed. It's sure. It doesn't matter whether you feel it's true or not. This book here, it says so. So believe it, live it, trust God's promises. He is a father who delights in his children. And he has given us these precious promises like this to encourage us and strengthen us, to help us persevere, to bring us closer to him in trials and persecutions and sufferings, to see that when God seems furthest away, when he's quietest, when he seems absent, so often he's doing his greatest work of grace. And it does seem to make sense for the Christian faith. Because when Christ hung on that cross, when it looked like death and hell in the world had conquered, had triumphed over him, Christ was actually crushing the serpent's head. Satan. And when he lay in that grave, he was fulfilling the scriptures. And he proclaimed victory over death and hell. And on the third day, when all hope seemed lost, when everyone would have thought that corpse was rotting underground, when it looked like all hope was lost, then, on the third day, not on the first day, not on the second day, but on the third day, then that stone was rolled away from the tomb, and Christ marched out of that tomb in victory. So Christians, take heart. Your Father is working on your behalf. In your suffering, in your trials, in loneliness, in sickness, in COVID, in grief, in hardship and distress, beatings and tortures, in imprisonment, God is working for you and he's working in you. And your labors, your endurance, your tears, your sweat, will not be in vain. God has every tear of yours in a bottle. He's working all things for your good. Now, even in our time, even in these dark days, 
with order collapsing around us, chaos spreading, darkness looming throughout the land, people wanting to loot one another rather than cooperate in a civil society and actually be productive. Take heart. God will work this also for our good in the end. And give thanks. Just as Paul can be thankful in prison because, as he says, I thank my God. God is Paul's God. And it's not that Paul was so wise or righteous, but it's because God loved him and gave his son for him. So in every circumstance, wrongful imprisonment, whatever it is, you can still give thanks to God. And if Paul can give thanks in that circumstance, by all means, in every other circumstance of life, you can also have reason to give thanks. So be thankful. Now, what it specifically here, more specifically, what is Paul thanking God for as we look at the text? Paul is thanking God as he remembers the believers in Philippi making requests for them with joy. Christians should be marked by a supernatural thankfulness, and they also should be marked by joy. And why is Paul thanking God for his fellow saints? Why is he praying for them with joy in his heart? He tells us in verse 5, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. There is no sweeter thing in the world than to have fellowship with saints in the gospel. Psalm 133 verse 2 says, How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. Enjoying something for yourself is one thing, but when you enjoy it together with someone else, when your joy is based on the same thing, that joy is made complete. There's joy in shared traditions in a family. Christmas, Christmas dinner, exchanging gifts, New Year's parties. There's joy in shared interest in sports, hobbies, fishing, hunting, cooking, quilting, whatever it might be. We all know that it's more fun. There's more joy in it when it's shared with others. But if that's true, then how much more ought we have joy in a shared faith in Christ? It's a treasure hidden in a field. It's not a common thing. Most people haven't found it. We have a shared life and a shared mind in Christ that nothing else, no other fraternity or fellowship can counterfeit, imitate, or surpass. Now, fellowship in the gospel doesn't replace fellowship in a natural family, but it can help make up for it in some ways. And in a sense, it should supersede it. You have more in common more important things in common with a believer from Paraguay than you do an unbeliever who may have grown up in your own house. Because you share a faith in Christ, your brothers in the Lord. As the old saying goes, the blood of the covenant runs thicker than the water of the womb. The Christian faith is universal in scope, and it pierces to the depths of the soul. It brings all kinds of people into unity in the truth that is in Christ. And it brings a shared joy nothing else can equal. 
Now, verse 6, Paul gives further reason for this thanksgiving and joy in the Philippians. He's thankful and joyful because of their fellowship in the gospel, because he is confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is the more thankful, the more joyful, because he does not think the Philippians have a mere temporary faith. It's not a passing thing. It's not a passing fad. He doesn't think they're like the seed in Matthew's gospel that sprouts up quickly and then fades away. He's confident that they have true, unshakable, supernatural, saving faith, a faith that it endures in every trial because it's implanted in them by God and it rests on God and he will keep them. He's confident that God who began a good work in them. God who gave them new birth and gave them faith in Christ and his blood and his righteousness alone, he's confident that that God will surely carry on that good work he began to completion. Now, I think some terminology would be helpful here as we move forward. Justification, it's a word that I've said quite a bit already. Justification is a one-time act where God counts the sinner righteous only on the basis of Christ's merits and death in their place. This justification is complete and total, and it's over with in the instant a person believes in Jesus Christ. So, as an analogy, this could be like someone dumps a bucket of water over your head, and you're drenched. It's done and over with. There's no putting the water back in the bucket. It's done. Now, another word. Sanctification. Sanctification is God's ongoing work in the life of a believer. Where once he has counted them righteous on the basis of Christ's Christ's merits, he actually works in them to make them like Christ, to make them really righteous in their person, not just accounted as righteous. It's God's work of purifying believers and conforming them to the image of Christ. So God begins working in believers in a one-time act. But whoever God justifies, he then also sanctifies. He continues that good work in them. He brings it to completion. So that we are conformed to Christ. We're more like him. We become holy as God is holy. So sanctification is less like getting water dumped over you. And it's more like being in a swimming pool in swimming laps. It's a continuous, it's ongoing, it keeps going until you reach your destination. Paul goes on, Just as it is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, Inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. So Paul holds his fellow saints in his heart. He cherishes them. They've become dear to them, to him, because in a sense, they've become participants with him in his imprisonment. They've joined in his work in defending and declaring the gospel. They've sent him messengers to help with his need while he's in prison. So in their fellowship together, in that gospel partnership, God has bound them together. He's knit them together. 
And in verse 8, he explains further, For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, we've not been long here together as a church, at least with me here. Most of you have been here together a long time. But as we move forward as a church, we will meet trials of our own, which we'll have to face. There will be hardships to meet and work through. But if we hold fast to the truth of the faith, if we become co-laborers and we support one another, and we seek to build one another up and encourage one another in those trials, then those trials will prove to be the very crucible, the furnace where our faith is refined and we gain a camaraderie and a partnership together in the gospel and persevering in those same hardships. So when you know someone's suffering, someone's sick in the hospital, as God gives uh, opportunity, as you have the ability, be the kind of person who will reach out to them. Participate in their suffering in some way. Let's bear one another's burdens. It's not a meaningless thing. It encourages the downcast. It strengthens your own character. It strengthens fellowship. And it also grants the giver, the one who reaches out, the one who gives a grace in that time. It gives them a greater joy and peace in believing, greater assurance. So be zealous, be hungry, be eager to do good works. Be eager to know, know the joy of serving the Lord together in one spirit. Just as soldiers in battle can meet decades after a tour of duty with their band of brothers and they can pick up talking like they just left yesterday, they know the heat of the battle binds them together with those fighting with them in a way nothing else does. They learn to trust those who cover for them in battle. They watch their backs. They march together toward a common goal. Bullets flying, sweat spilling, blood and tears. They bandage each other's wounds. They help each other. So the church ought to be bound together in a brotherhood and in a fellowship as we seek to carry out the Great Commission. We're brothers and sisters in arms. So may God bind us together in the days ahead as we strive together toward our common goal of making disciples of Jesus Christ, each according to his own gifts and his own calling. Now, I'll close this way. Paul gives us an example here of maintaining gratitude and overflowing in joy in the midst of wrongful imprisonment. He's thankful, he's joyful, he's confident, even in his chains. Scripture calls you to do the same. Give thanks in all circumstances, Paul commands the Thessalonian church. James commands us to count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Paul says elsewhere that we are to rejoice always. And we should. But if you're sitting there and you look out the window at the snow and the cold, you're wondering if the sun really still exists in Wisconsin Rapids or if the clouds will ever break. 
If you're sitting there starting to run low on your supply of vitamin D, you don't have a vacation to Florida on tap anytime soon, you've been sick with the flu or any one of these other hundred viruses going around, you're nauseous, recovering from illness, dealing with grief, or the loss of a loved one, or their sickness, you're not feeling thankful all the time. You're not feeling joy all the time, in every circumstance, without failing, though you try. You don't always feel confident in your difficult circumstances. You're not in prison, and you feel guilty in that. If you feel guilty, take heart. The Lord has triumphed in your place. Christ was thankful in every circumstance. Christ did rejoice always. Christ was confident in God, even in his arrest and in his wrongful trial. Even when those nails pierced his hands and his feet. He said in John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. No fear in death. Christ was the man for you. He didn't sin. He didn't despair without hope. He was never bitter. He never lacked joy. He never ceased to be thankful. Even with his lifeblood pouring out on the ground on that cross and with God's wrath pouring out on his head for sins he never committed. Christ lived the righteous life that you're lacking, and he died the death that you deserve to die, and he drained that cup of God's wrath so that in your failings and in your guilt over it, you can look to the cross and know that your Redeemer lives, and that when God looks at you on that last day, for all who believe in him, he won't see the stain of your sin, but only the white garments of Christ which he's clothed you in. And you can look to him, look to the cross, and find grace to help in time of need, and rejoice, because even though you fail and fall short, Christ never did. And he will never fail you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that none of us here would receive the grace of God in vain but rather through faith you would fill us with all of your fullness. And I pray that through Christ all of us would overflow in thanksgiving and joy, knowing what you've saved us from and what you've saved us to. And I pray that you would help us work together to spread this gospel of your grace in this city of Wisconsin Rapids and over all the earth. Pray in Jesus' name.